that idea of playing music perfectly and kind of getting to the point where where you you play it well enough to record it isn't as important as just playing for the dancers that are right there in front in front of you and there are always dancers that's 2019 national heritage fellow basque musician and tradition bearer dan and sadege and this is artworks the weekly podcast produced at the national endowment for the arts i'm josephine reed Ask Dan and Sadiki what he remembers about growing up, and he'll tell you the smells and tastes of his mother's cooking and the sound of his father's music, both deeply rooted in the Basque tradition. These experiences set him on a path to an exploration and embrace of his heritage, not as something preserved in amber, but as a living, breathing tradition that can't help but be shaped by life in America. All four of Dan's grandparents came to the U.S. from the same area of the Basque region, near Bilbao, at the turn of the 20th century. The men became sheep herders in the American West, with both families eventually settling in Idaho. There remains a vibrant Basque community, whose rich culture continues to bloom, due in no small part to Dan and Sadegi. As a performer, teacher, and restaurateur, his passions for Basque music, dance, language, and food both leads and inspires. Since the Basque region is really at the spine of Dan's cultural work, I thought it was important to begin at the beginning with a little geography. If you don't mind, situate Basque country geographically. Okay, think about how Spain kind of juts out a little bit uh, north of the, the northern part of the Mediterranean. Then there's a, a point there where Spain and France meet, and that northern part of the abutting of the two countries is the Basque area. The Basque area lies partially on the Spanish side of that, uh, that section and partially on the French side. So there are a total of seven provinces uh, within the Basque country. Uh, four of those provinces are on the Spanish side, and three of those are on the French side. And it's really quite small. Uh, you can drive across the entire Basque country, um, even with all its hills and and uh, curvy roads and stuff. You can still drive across the Basque country in just under a couple hours. I want to hear about your growing up. I know it was a musical family, and I know you came from a family that knew how to cook. So these are two of my favorite things in the world. So tell me about it. Mine too, plus the eating. The, the eating always kind of... Uh, fueled my desire to learn to cook. But it's true, we did. We, uh, My dad played accordion. He started with the button accordion, which is what I play now. He um, went up into the hills. He's actually a very young young man. He was born here in the States, but he and his brother kind of kind of conspired against their mom to quit school after eighth grade. And in, you know, 1925, that wasn't uh, as big of a deal, although they said, their mother said, if you guys quit school, you have to go herd sheep during that those four years you would have been in high school, thinking they never would have done that because it really was such a lonely and, and a difficult uh, job. And they took her up on it. And so my dad was uh, 13 years old, and he was given a Winchester 3030 and uh, three dogs and a thousand ewes. And up in the hills, he went on his own. And he spoke about that a little bit. That was incredibly lonely life for him. Before he went up, he got a hold of a button accordion and took that up with him. And he, he, he said he was always um, really fortunate because he had this pretty amazing ear. So when they were up there, once in a while, if there was a herder 
that wasn't too far away, they might get together and have dinner together. And one of those bass guys would sing him uh, some song. And he said usually by the next morning he had it. And, and so he kind of learned music like that. When he came home, he started to learn the piano accordion because it was so much more versatile. And that's the way I remember growing up. And, and my dad, uh, Papa, was playing the piano accordion for us, kind of when we had family dinners and things like that. His good friend, Jim Gisero, who also won the same fellowship uh, in 1985. Yes, Jimmy Gisero, the great Basque accordionist, was another National Heritage Fellow. Yes, and I got to go back to D.C. as a dancer then with the Oinkati Bass Dancers uh, and dance for Jim's uh, performance there in Washington. Which I think is so cool. It was just, it was it was really an experience, a great experience to be able to do that with Jimmy. And, and uh, my dad had passed away, and so another gentleman was playing with Jim at the time. And, but in the late 50s, Jim formed a uh, Basque band, um, and uh, he asked my dad to play drums for him. And my dad didn't play drums, but kind of worked it out so that so that my dad uh, started playing drums from then on. And so even though when I was growing up, my dad still played accordion, it was less and less. Every year he'd be a little more frustrated and, and when he'd try to play. But he was, he was a, a, a good drummer. And so since drums are kind of the hard thing to move, uh, the band would meet at our house and have, have rehearsal maybe once a month or once every couple of months. And I remember that really distinctly. You know, we'd have dinner and then they'd start maybe at 730 or something, start with their uh, rehearsals and learn a couple of new songs, maybe go over some sticking points and other songs. And then we'd always have to go to bed, you know, at nine o'clock or whatever it was. And, and they played in the room directly below my bedroom. And so it, that music kind of came up through the vents. And I just always remember that I, I just always had that music around me, I think. That's wonderful. So Basque dancing was actually your first performing experience. Yes, we, we start quite young. We start around five or six years old. And uh, and so that was just something my dad was playing music uh, for the dancers. And so we went. There wasn't a question about, you know, whether or not we even wanted to. That wasn't, uh, wasn't even uh, in the cards. We just went as dancers. And then when you turn 14, then the, the younger kids stopped and you joined the Oinkatis, the, the, the young adult group. And I did that until I was in my mid-20s. Uh, then I kind of I played music for a few years, and then I had the restaurant, and so I kind of stopped doing that. I got married and had kids, and when the kids started dancing, then I was able to start playing music again for the Oinkatis, and one thing kind of led into another. When did you begin to play music? Well, I... I played the trumpet or coronet in high school. When I was a sophomore in college, there was a Basque, there was a program that went to the Basque country, and we were able to learn Basque. It was through Boise State University here. Dr. Pat Beter had, had set up this program, and there were 35 Americans that went over. I would say a third of us were learning Basque, and two-thirds were learning Spanish. We were in a little town called Oñate. And that's when I began to learn the chistu, which is a kind of a basque, the fife and drum kind of thing, where you play a three-hold recorder uh, in your left hand, and you hang a drum from your left arm, and then with your right hand, you play the drum. And so I learned to play that back when I was a 19-year-old kid. And uh, I didn't learn the button accordion until much later in 1990, a gentleman named Joseba Tapia came here to the United States. I'd always had a fascination for the button accordion. Hadn't heard it really all that much, but I always just loved the sound of it. Joseba came over for that Basque Festival that year, and he and I became good friends, and I told him I wanted to go over. I had plans to go over and 
maybe if he had a student who could teach me button accordion, he said, oh, heck, I'll take, take you on. And so I had the champion of the Basque country and the button accordion was my, was my teacher. And so I was there for four months visiting my sister and with the hopes of opening a Basque restaurant here in Boise and learning the button accordion. Uh, when I came back, then I, I kind of um, taught myself a fair amount. And then being able to build on that, uh, it just, just changed so much about, about who I was and, and who I was to become um, and the importance of music in my life. It just took on a new role and, um, and really just has kept growing since then, I think. I know this is a really hard question, but can you tell me what it feels like for you when you're playing the accordion? I, th- I think if I'm playing well, if I'm not distracted, I-, I think I become more of a listener. I think of myself more as a listener than a player. I don't think about what my hands have to do. I don't think about which direction the bellows are going. I don't think about things like that. If I can just kind of get in that mode where I'm just listening and enjoying it, I think that's when I feel the most reward from it, and I think I play better that way. When I start to kind of think about, oh, here comes that one tricky part, or, or I have to remember that this button jumps up. You know, if I try to think about technical aspects of it, then I, I, have, a, I have a tough time and I mess up uh, every time. And so I think, yeah, I guess that's it. I really just become more of a listener, an active listener, if that's possible, to where I'm just kind of enjoying the music not that much differently than if I were sitting in the audience hearing somebody else play it. I don't feel like I'm separated from myself at all. Not, it's nothing like that. Um, it's just this idea that, that I can't think about the details uh, and the technical aspects of what I'm doing. Um, I just kind of have to enjoy the music. It's like muscle memory kicks in. Yeah, I think that's, that's a part of it. And, and then you're listening and responding, but you're not thinking, okay, now I have to do this, and this is a fifth, so jump over there. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right, Joe. Dancing is really crucial to Basque music, and Basque music is crucial to dancing. You won't dance to any music that isn't live. Is that correct? Yeah, in a lot of, in a lot of ways that's, that's, that's true. Jimmy Gisaro was was adamant about that as we were growing up. He went out of his way to play for the bass groups in, you know, surrounding towns, one of them an, uh, an hour away, and he would drive over there almost on a weekly basis and go play play music for these kids because he said he said every dancing group needs to have live music. And so he would do that as much as possible. It wasn't always the case with other communities, bass communities here in the United States because they didn't have that luxury of having a musician that was that dedicated to be able to do that. So, uh, but we were very fortunate around here, and and we still are. Even though Jimmy's gone, we still have uh, live musicians here in in town that provide music for the dancers in their different facets, and and uh, we're pretty lucky about that. Is there a large bass community in Idaho? Yes, I've heard a lot of times that the Treasure Valley or this the valley that Boise is in has, and and just kind of the surrounding area has. Uh, the largest Basque population in the United States. I haven't really seen any statistics that hold true, but but it does seem to be a very large area. And with southern Idaho's population not being all that big, we have, you know, maybe around 10,000 people of Basque heritage living in this area, even though we haven't had very very many immigrants since the 1950s. But um, now we still have, now we have the the third and even fourth generation of Basques that are really clinging onto that culture and even going back to the Basque country to learn the language. What makes Basque music Basque music? 
Well, usually I would say it's music that is centered around uh, three main instruments, um, the oldest being the chistu, and the chistu is that that fife and drum kind of idea. That's usually not used for social dances. That is used for performance uh, dances. The uh, the second instrument is the alboca. The alboca is a very old a double reeded instrument that the player or the musician uses circular breathing. So there's never you can never really hear a breath being taken. And it has kind of a drone sound and and it's a little bit in sound. It sounds like a, a bagpipe. It's very limited. It only has a range of just a little over an octave, but it's used more for the social dances, the typically the fandango and the arinarin or the hotan porosala, the two main social dances of the of the Basque people. And then the last one and the newest one is the is the accordion, either the button accordion, the small one like I play, uh, the button chromatic, or the piano accordion. And those then are used for the ritual dances, uh, but they're they're often used mostly for the social dances. You know, things like uh, waltzes and marches and things like that that are done a lot in the Basque country. And what about the lyrics? What are the songs about? Typically, is it about everyday things? Is it do they tend to take on more of a I don't know transcendent feel? I would say before 1970, the lyrics were quite lighthearted. The main song that was sung to would have been the Jota and the Porosalda, uh, which is the Basque version of the Fandango and uh, its counterpart. The, the Porosalda or the Arinarinas is more typically found in the Basque country than any other part of Spain. But it always has a verse, uh, and the verses are something that are typically something comical, kind of a, a take on something that um, happens in town. Basque is a really interesting language to rhyme because it's built on suffixes. So to the store rhymes with to my house or to my home or to the football field or anything because to the is the suffix. And so um, and that happens with all prepositions. So Basque is really easy to rhyme. And so Making up these verses as they go is really kind of a kind of customary. It's from the 1970s, before that Basque was illegal to be spoken in in public in Spain. Yes, that was under the dictatorship of Francisco Franco. And mid 70s, they kind of loosened the grip on that. And then you started to hear folk singers that came out and and were singing really beautiful lyrics and and melodies and much more poetic. Well, this might be a good time to hear some music. Can you do that now, or do you prefer to do it later? Sure, I'd be happy to I'd do I'd love it. One. What did you bring? So I have my uh, button accordion. This is this is one that um so we'll I'll play uh, one that that is a march or a biribilqueta and this is called Bye Bye Baby. It's a play on words in in Basque it means yes yes two cows. <laughs> but here this is the I have to the get, get that laugh out. And it, this good. is a an original tune. Thank you. 
That was fabulous. The minute you started, my foot is tapping away and I'm moving around. I mean, this music just begs to be danced to. Great. And that, you know, and I, th- I think that's kind of one of the things that we always keep in mind. I talk to my students a lot, the accordion students, and when I do cooking classes and when I do other talks about the Basques, I always talk about that idea that we have to know the roots. We have to know the, the basis upon which we build. And then it's okay as long as we keep a foot in that. And then when we have new ideas, as long as they come back to that basis, um, we're okay. And that's really kind of how I feel our community here and our culture being Basque and American, how it continues. Because if we just copy things, it's that copy of a copy. And pretty soon after just a generation or two, you just notice a a big difference and things have changed for the worst. And we saw that happening here in Boise. And with the program that Dr. Pat Beter had in the town of Oñate, probably over the five years that the program lasted, there were there were somewhere around 150 young people that went back and and really got to find out more about their roots and, and uh, find out more about the Basque language and the Basque culture. And it seems to me like that was one of the big parts of how our culture here in Boise started to change uh, to where kind of have our own little Basque culture here in, in the Boise area. Yeah, because culture needs to be vibrant. And if it if it's rigid, as with anything rigid, it can just snap and crack and break. Uh, but the vibrancy and the suppleness and, you know, taking things in just allows it to thrive. Exactly. I, 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 I so agree with that. Were you always interested in the cultural work that you're doing? Was there a period that you were less involved in actively participating in in Basque culture? Or has that always been a part of your life? It seems like one aspect or another has been, whether it was through dance or playing music or cooking or having the restaurant, whatever aspect it was. But I don't know how much I ever thought of it as doing something to spread the culture. It was just what I enjoyed to do. You know, just kind of when I fell into something, I just kind of um, got really submersed in that. that. And um, whether it was music or the the restaurants um, or teaching or whatever it was, and it's always been something that I did just because it was fun and I enjoyed it rather than with the pure intention of trying to spread the culture. I don't think that's ever really been too much of, uh, of my purpose. I think it's just been a consequence of that. Let's talk about food. Good. Tell me, what is distinctive about Basque cooking? You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people about that and listened to a lot of, of truly good cooks, uh, whether they're home cooks or whether they're chefs, and it always seems to come down to the same thing. One thing that was always there was incredibly fresh and diverse food. The fishing off the coast of the Basque country is cold water fishing. The early Basques traveled to get the Atlantic cod, learned about drying and salting, and that became a huge staple in the in the food. But the Basques have never been one for a whole lot of spices and herbs. The simplest of spices and herbs are used in Basque cooking. Salt, fresh garlic, parsley, a little bit of crushed red pepper, and that's basically it. And everything is kind of built on that. I remember doing a cooking class at Boise State, and somebody came through who was um, a writer, a food writer. And she came through, and we were doing that night, we were doing roasted lamb. And it was a great class. It was a three-hour class. 
Um, I would supply the, the food that we were going to cook. We'd talk about it, then we would prepare it, and then we'd sit down and eat and and then kind of tell stories about similar kinds of food, and, and then we would clean up. And it was just a fantastic class. The food writer came in when we were doing roast lamb, and all we did was the basic rub that my grandma, my mom's mom, uh, Epi and Chausti, did, which was olive oil, fresh garlic, and salt. And you make it into almost a paste, and you rub that on the on the leg of lamb. And then we would roast that lamb. We'd use the drippings from the, the pan. Um, and from that, we made a sauce that was from the lamb. So we didn't make a sauce separately out of peppercorns and rosemary and, and things like that. The sauce came directly from the, the meat. And I think that's really typical with Basque food, whether you're doing fish, chicken, pork, beef, whatever it is that you're doing. If you have a sauce, it's quite simple and it's made from the protein itself. And that's what I remember a a lot from most of that. Fresh ingredients, simply done, and the the main flavor that you taste is the ingredient. It's not the sauce or the spice rub or anything else. The main thing is that main ingredient. But I would think that as with the music, the food would have to adapt too because you have different herbs here and different food. I don't know much, but I'm pretty sure there's not a lot of cod in Idaho. You're very right. And when, when, when Grandma Epi, who was my mom's mom, when she came over, she cooked very little in the Basque country. She was a seamstress. And uh, she came over here, and she was thrown into the cook job there at, on the sheep ranch. So she, she kind of remembered some of the stuff that her mom had done. But you're right. She didn't have the Basque peppers here. She didn't have salt cod. They had beef, which they really didn't have um, as much of uh, back home. They had the freshwater trout and things like that that they had that she had to adapt to. And so so the things that she did here, we see this birth of this ranch-style cooking uh, here in the United States at the boarding houses that are found in Nevada and California and, and used to be in, in Idaho. And you would see this style of cooking that almost resembles American ranch cooking, the um, really hearty uh, soups and stews and meats, but always done with kind of that Basque flair. Uh, And so that was kind of the Basque food that we grew up on. And then to go back to the Basque country and see these beautiful fresh fish that they did and the use of pork that is so much more prevalent there than it is here and the very little use of beef. And so anyway, there were differences with the music and, and with the food as well, how those things changed here in the States. You mentioned going to the Basque country when you were thinking about opening a restaurant. Did you do an apprenticeship around food the way you did with music? Learning about food really wasn't a true apprenticeship. It was really that was just going back and talking to the mothers of my friends. And, and uh, you know, I would ask, I would find out that Mrs. Echeverria made the best, best garbanzo bean soup. And so I would talk to her and I'd say, Next time you make it, can I come hang out and can I just kind of watch what you're doing? And I would write everything down. And, and so a lot of my, my learning of food was through that and also through a lady named Miriam Barquin who worked for me here in Boise at the Basque Market. And, and I just followed her around like a little, little puppy, you know, trying to watch <laughs> everything that she did and, and, and learn from her. I'm curious about how social, um, you know, the music and the dancing, and I would imagine the food and cooking as well. And it just strikes me that, especially now when, when we're in a time of, on one hand, 
we're able to communicate so much easier than ever before. You know, we all carry these little computers in our hands, you know, our smartphones, and that's great. But it also is more isolating. And oddly enough, I think in Idaho, where, you know, the population is small, nonetheless, is coming together and this community builds through, through these cultural traditions because they're so social. Yes, I, I, I agree completely. And I think the social aspect of it is what, what keeps it going. We haven't had a whole lot of individual recording here in Idaho. We've done some, uh, but not, not a whole lot because most of our playing of music is done just in a social aspect. That idea of playing music perfectly and kind of getting to the point where, where you, you play it well enough to record it isn't as important as just playing for the dancers that are right there in front of, in front of you. And there are always dancers. So I, I agree with you. I think a huge part of our culture is that social aspect. And when it kind of separates itself from that and it becomes more academic or more historical, then it, it changes. You've mentored several apprentices, like a few handfuls, uh, throughout your life. Can you tell me... Um, just the value of that, not not just for them, but for you as well. Fortunately, because of the organizational skills of, of Gina Arkiti uh, and Anna Mendiola, we have Chanchangoria. I have a button accordion group that I teach accordion. Another gentleman and lady teach uh, tambourine. And so within that group, since we we got together, we started in 2001 uh, and have, have had the support of the Basque people here in the valley. You know, I, I don't know if I've ever heard the number of people that we've taught, but I would guess that it's probably over those 18 years or so, around 40 people that have learned button accordion and probably another 40 that have learned tambourine. Of those, I think we have, I guess we're closer to 20 that are active right now, continuing to play and continuing to pray, provide music for, for dancers. All of the dance groups in the area, uh, except for one, their musicians are people that have come through our little button accordion group. So it's, it's pretty amazing. We're um, really happy to see that going on. And it just seems as strong now as it was, you know, 30 years ago when I was growing up. Tell me what being named a 2019 NEA National Heritage Fellow means to you. Of course, it was a big surprise at the very beginning. And then it was really, for a while, it was quite embarrassing because I, I think of all of the people that have played such a huge role in uh, in Basque culture in this area alone and have not been recognized. And when you have people like Patty Miller that uh, has been the director of the Basque Museum and had other roles within that and really was responsible for the uh, the establishment of the Basque block in downtown Boise, and all of the things that she's done. And we have people like Chris Beter, who's coming back with me to perform in D.C. Just about every music project I've been a part of, Chris has been right there. And and I just see all these other things, and that, that was really difficult. And my wife kind of helped me come to the conclusion that really it's not about me. It's really a representation of all those people within the community who have done so much. And that's easier for me to handle, to try to think about it in that sense, that I may be the one that's being recognized, but it's really the work of all these other people that have made what we're doing out in this area a success. I think it's for you and the community. Dan, congratulations. I really look forward to meeting you at the National Heritage events here in Washington, D.C. 
Thank you very much, Josephine. We're really, really happy to come out. I have, uh, I think, 20 family members and friends that are coming out as well. And uh, we're practicing hard to try to put on a good show. I wish you were cooking, though. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you'll have to come out this way and, and have something. <laughs> Definitely. I'll, we, can, we can do it that way. Well, listen, okay. thank you. That was 2019 National Heritage Fellow, Basque musician and tradition bearer Dan Ansadegui. If you want to see Dan Ansadegui perform and you're in D.C. on Friday, September 20th, come to a free concert that will feature music, art, and stories from all of our 2019 National Heritage Fellows, including Dan. It's at Shakespeare Company's Sydney Harmon Hall, and it begins at 8 p.m. You can get more information at arts.gov. And if you can't come to D.C., please do not despair. You can watch a live webcast of the concert at arts.gov. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I want to thank Stephen Hatcher for his insights. He's the Folk and Traditional Arts Director at the Idaho Commission on the Arts. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Thank you.